It's great to have your company. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you are listening to Life Learnings, conversations with Christians about their lives and ministries and how faith has impacted their lives. My guest today is Charissa Fong. Charissa is a young lady who has a passion for evangelism. In the first half hour of the program, we'll be talking about her work in preaching and evangelism. Welcome, Charissa. Thank you, Barry. Lovely to have you with us today. It's good to be here. I think you're my first female guest, actually. There you go. Why evangelism? Oh, look, evangelism is the lifeblood of the church and of your Christian faith. I love evangelism. To me, it's one of the most exciting things that we can be involved in. And I think every Christian should be part of evangelism because a church that's not reaching out is passing out. And uh, sometimes I think we get worried with evangelism being something that's very difficult and should be reserved for the paid evangelists of the church. But I like to think of it this way. Evangelism is just one beggar telling other beggars where they found bread. Great. (laughs) When did you feel the call? Did you always feel this way or Uh, is this just something relatively recent? No, this is something that's been in my heart for a very long time Um, as a child. I was like most children. I was very impressionable. So when I saw The Sound of Music on television, I came home and I demanded that my parents whistle for me if they wanted me to come to them because that's what happened in the movie. Uh, My dad liked westerns because he loves the horses. So whenever he's watching a John Wayne western, I would uh, watch that and go in the backyard and pretend I was, you know, out out on the prairies or whatever they were. So my mum faithfully took me to church all my life. And actually, shortly after she married my dad, he stopped. But my mum kept taking me to church. And of course, as a little girl, I would sit in the ch- in the church pew and I would look up the front and listen to a preacher get up the front and preach. And I used to think that that was just the most amazing thing ever because I'm actually a very shy person. You might find it difficult to believe, but public speaking is something I don't find easy. But as a little girl, I'd watch people get up and preach, and I'd just think, wow, I wish I could do something like that. So I would come home from church, and I would go into my bedroom as a little girl, and I was sharing a room with my sister at the time. But I would close the door to our room, and I'd stand in front of the mirror in our room, and I would preach to the mirror, and I'd preach my heart out. They were, in my opinion, some of history's deepest sermons. Not many theologians would be able to understand the deep things that I preached about (laughs) in those sermons. So this preaching was deeply rooted in your childhood. Well, I guess you could say that. It's always been something in my heart. And one day while I was preaching one of history's deepest sermons, my sister uh, came into the room without knocking because we were sharing. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm preaching. And, and she said, can I play? So I said, sure. So we would play church regularly. She would come. She would do the song service, the welcome, announce the hymn. We'd stand for the first hymn together. Uh, she would say the prayer, take up the offering. Then I would preach. And then we would both stand for our final hymn. And then I would shake her hand and thank her for coming as she walked out of our room. So this is... Um This is somewhat different, isn't it? Most children (laughs) do something else, but they don't usually play church, do they? No, well, it just goes to show how impressionable children are. And I think that um, this could say something to parents, you know, of of what we need to be be careful of what we show our children. Um, All these video games and movies, kids go out and they imitate what they see. So So how how did you know that this is what 
you really wanted to do? Yeah, well, that's a good question, Barry. Um, so I was playing church for quite a while. And one day while I was probably about seven, um, the head elder of our church, he came to make a visit to our home to see my dad, who wasn't going to church. And I didn't know he was in the house. And uh, he looked through my bedroom window, which was slightly open, and he saw me preaching to the mirror. And he thought to himself, one day I'm going to get that girl to preach. Well, I go, I leave primary school and I get to high school. And uh, I was a year eight student, 14 years old in high school. And I showed up to school one morning and I was talking with my friends and my English teacher. She walks past and she says, good morning, good morning. Have you got your speeches ready for English? And we looked at each other and we said, what speeches? She said, the one that I gave you for homework. It's due next class. And so we stopped talking and went and started writing a speech. English came and the particular speech that we had to give was to be on a book that we had read. And the book that I had read was a book entitled Rachel's Tears, which is about a girl who died because she was shot because she said she believed in God during the Columbine High School shootings of Mm -hmm. 1999. Anyway, I decided I'd be the brother of this girl in the book. And uh, my teacher, when she put my name on the board, I got up and I began to give this speech that I hadn't prepared. And as I'm going through my speech in my mind, a little light bulb came on in my head and it said, why don't you make an appeal like the evangelists do in their crusades? Is this all. a Christian school? It was a Christian school, but not an Adventist school. And uh, yeah, so why don't I make an appeal like the evangelists do in their crusades? After all, you're just pretending to be like somebody else. And I thought to myself, that is a brilliant idea. So I get to the end of my speech and I said, and now if you would like to accept Jesus as your personal savior or forever friend, would you mind raising your hands with me? And my class just sat there. I have never seen a class of year eight students sit so still in all my life. They didn't move. The only thing that moved was my teacher at the back. Her jaw nearly hit the (laughs) ground. You know, she couldn't believe what was happening at the front of the room. But the funny thing was, Barry, is that I've never seen an appeal done where nobody responded. So I didn't know what to do if nobody moved. And so as far as I was concerned, I was going to stay at the front of that classroom with my hand in the air until someone responded. And my friend at the time, she was sitting in the front row and she must have been so embarrassed. Finally, she put her hand up and I leaned over the desk and I said, God bless you, friend, and sat down. And when I sat down, I just felt awful. I just wished the ground had opened up and swallowed me. I went home. I was crying. I told my mom, I don't want to go ever go back to that school. They're all going to think I'm weird and they're going to think I'm some kind of a religious nut. Um, which, by the way, God doesn't want religious nuts. He wants spiritual fruits. <laughs> but uh, I was just a mess. And my mom said, oh, don't worry, Sharissa. You know, you're just pretending to be like somebody else. Next day, I showed up at school. And uh, to make things worse, my friends were late. They missed the bus. So I was all alone, feeling very uncomfortable in this school. And my teacher walks past. She says, Sharissa, walk with me. So I walked with her and she looks at me and she says, that was an excellent speech you gave yesterday. I said, really? She said, how would you like to give the whole speech again in assembly today? I couldn't believe it. And she said, uh, I said, do you mean the whole thing? Do you mean the hands up thing and everything? She said, yes, I've been talking to the teachers. We want the whole thing in assembly today. She said, you got 99 out of 100. I said, really? What did I lose the mark on? She said, you went too long. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I went for a a 
I think it was seven minutes instead of four minutes, but that's just because no one put, didn't put their hand up. So <laughs> I waited a long time. But um, yeah, the Lord opened up an opportunity for me to give that same speech as best as I could remember it to my whole school. I changed the appeal a little bit because I realized the first one didn't work. And nearly every hand in the school went up. And I remember walking off the platform and thinking to myself, well, I felt very shaken, first of all, to realize that God had just used me, a shy 14-year-old girl. And that was just the beginning, really, of a journey that God took me on. It's not exactly the sort of thing that um, young 14-year-old girls do, is it? No, I guess it isn't, no. (laughs) But... um, Basically, from that encounter, my teacher, she obviously saw something in me that could be developed for God's glory. And the following year, I was still 14, but uh, we had a public speaking competition at our school. And they wanted to enter someone from the school, and they entered my friend. But for some reason, and the Lord, he orchestrates all the events of our lives, I believe. My friend and his family decided to move to Queensland, which meaning meant that they needed to find someone to take his place. I was not their first choice, but they asked me when he left. And I said, well, I need to think about it and pray about it because I've never done anything like this before in my life. So I went home, prayed about it, came back, found my teacher the next day, and I told her, and I said, look, I will go into this competition on one condition. She said, what's that? I said that I can speak about God. And as a teacher, she could have looked at me and said, Sharissa, that's nice. But God won't work in a secular competition. But instead, she looked at me and she said something to me, which looking back, I think was life changing. She said, I believe that's the very best thing you could do. Mm. She encouraged me. And so I then went away and tried to write a speech on God for a secular audience. Where do you start? I prayed about it and my sister helped me. She reminded me that in the year 2000, on New Year's Eve, the Harbour Bridge lit up and there splashed across it, you might remember, was the word eternity um, from the life of that man, Arthur Stace, who spent, mm-hmm. I think, 34 years of his life chalking that one-word sermon on the streets of Sydney. And so I wrote a speech on eternity and the eternity that God offers to us. The night before that presentation, I was a nervous wreck. I don't think I, I can't remember a time in my life where I was more nervous than that night. And I still remember it. If I close my eyes, I can see my room. I was kneeling beside my bed, nervous wreck, 14 years old, and I was praying just before I went to sleep. And I said, oh, Lord, you and I both know that I can't do this tomorrow. So I said, Lord, if you let me get through tomorrow. And then I thought for a moment and I said, no, hang on a minute. If you let me win tomorrow, then I promise you that I will speak for you wherever you open the doors. Because I knew in and of myself that if I won it would be a miracle because I had practiced in front of my class that day and I had failed miserably because I forgot my notes. Well the next day came and I walked into this room. Our school was hosting the competition at the time and uh, there were all these students from all these other schools there and they were so polished in their public speaking. They were very talented kids. And I walked in, felt very intimidated. I remember hearing one guy talk about the UN. And I, at the time, I had no idea what the UN was. I thought it was un. (laughs) You know, I was just very green in everything. Walked in, and I was the second speaker for that heat. And I remember I got up, and I started this speech. And I'm going through the speech when something happened. My principal walked into the classroom while I was in the middle of my speech. 
And rule number one in public speaking competitions, you do not enter or leave a room when someone is speaking because it's highly distracting. Of course, in every other situation, in a church or in any other public meeting, people come and go all the time. But in public speaking, they, they lock the doors sometimes, you know. My principal came into the room and I remember I looked at him and suddenly the page that I had memorized and was reading in my head just disappeared. And I was left there staring at my audience with, I was blank and I was panicking on the inside, but I had a serious face on, so it looked like pause for effect, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was panicking, thinking, what comes next? And then a miracle happened. My mouth just took off and started talking, picked up where I'd left off. And while I'm panicking in my mind, I stopped and I was listening to what I was saying. And I realized, oh, yeah, that's where I was. And then I kept going. A second time, there was a class change and my classmates were walking past the room that I was in and they were smiling and waving at me through the door and I looked at them again, second time, page vanishes from my mind. I panicked and again, a second time, my mouth just picked up and kept going. It happened three times. Three times I lost the words and three times God brought the words back to me. And when I sat down at the end of that speech, I felt very shaken because I, I felt like Jeremiah, you know. I felt like God had just reached down and put his words into my mouth. Well, that was one half of the competition. That went very well. The second half was an impromptu section, and I am terrible at impromptu things, Barry. I, uh, when I write sermons these days, I even put a symbol in my notes that tells me when to breathe. <laughs> you know, I'm very scripted. But, uh, yeah, I was the worst impromptu speaker in the competition, but when the adjudicator came to announce the winners, there were three winners, someone else, someone else, and then he announced myself. And I wasn't sure if he was saying my name properly, so I stayed seated. And he looked at me and he said, that's you. And so I got up and I spoke to him because that's what you were meant to do, get feedback for the next round. And he said to me, Sharissa, that was an incredible speech. He said, that could have been in the senior division. Just one thing, take God out of it for the next round. That was his specific advice. I listened, nodded, and walked away. My teacher saw me and she said, what did he say? And I told her. And she looked at me and she said, Sharissa, do you remember why you went into this? And I said, yes. And she said, then don't change a thing. I went from that competition and my teacher was so keen to get me to win something. I never won another speech competition ever again. The teacher that, that saw me through that experience, she tried. She entered me in every competition I think there is, and I never got past first base ever again. But that's okay because, you know, the promise that I made to God that night before was that, Lord, if you let me win tomorrow, I'll speak for you wherever you open the he doors. Didn't, he didn't promise you the next time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but he did, you know, he, he uh, brought me through that once. And so basically from that day to this, I have gone wherever the Lord has opened the doors. Now I have a question. Yes, you You do. seem like your career as a preacher is like a train heading, <laughs> you know, with a whistle. <laughs> blasting through the air. Uh -huh. How then did you come to do teacher training? This is a very good question. I think it was the very fact that, well, first of all, uh, a teacher had a great impact on my life, as you just heard in what I just shared there. It was Teachers a, do, don't they? Yeah, it was a teacher that, because of what she said to me, um, that encouraged me. And she saw potential in me when nobody else did. In fact, um, when I was 16, that's when... 
a man in my church, the man that looked through the door and saw me preaching as a, a child, he he said that he wanted the teens of our church to run a youth, um, you know, evangelistic mission. And nobody else thought that it was a good idea that I should be the speaker. And I don't blame them. I had no public speaking experience at that time, no theological training. I'd never done it before, never preached a sermon before. And here they were saying, we want her to do it. But um, God obviously looks at us differently and he sees potential where we do not. And it was a teacher that saw the potential in me and because she encouraged it, that's where I am today. That's one of the great things that teachers can do mm, absolutely. for people is to encourage them to see if there's some sort of um, ability and talent there and then nurture that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of um, teaching is really highly successful when it's relational, when absolutely. it's, uh, when it's um, trying to assist that person to find themselves and mm. their pathway in life. Mm. So where did you go for your teacher training? I went to Macquarie University, which is based in Sydney. Yeah. So you'd already you'd been moving in this direction of, of preaching, mm-hmm. but you went to do teaching. Was that um, something that you wanted to do or was it something you felt you should do or did some people talk to you and say, we think you should be a teacher? Um, I have two passions. I enjoy preaching and teaching. And I suppose because to me there's no money in preaching, <laughs> I saw teaching as a tent-making thing that I could enjoy. And, you know, there is a lot of skills that you learn in teaching that are very useful to you when you are preaching. Well, I think that's true. I mm. think if you're going to be a good preacher, you have to have the capacity to teach. Absolutely. And a good teacher has that capacity to preach as well, I mm. think. Mm. So what subjects did you do at university? I studied, trained to be a high school teacher of English and history. Mm. I'm a humanities girl. I love so words. I. I'm oh. a humanities person as I, well. Oh, yes. yes, we love words and history, stories, those sorts of things. So did you find university confronting to your faith? Yes and no. I mean, it was different for me because I went from an Adventist. I went to the Warunga Seventh-day Adventist Primary School, and that was good because it it was helpful to grounding me and my faith. And then I went from there to a Christian high school, which was also good because I was able to share my faith, but it was still within a Christian environment. And then I went from there to a secular university, which was different again. But you know what? I don't, rem- I don't recall it ever being a great challenge to me because I was so focused on um, sharing my faith that it was never a burden. It was always a blessing to be around so many people that had so many different walks of life. I just couldn't help but appreciate the opportunity. You know, I think schools and universities are a great place for us to share Jesus with others because you go there every day and people can't get away from you. You know. So you completed a degree. <laughs> I did. And um, did you de- did you actually get out to teach? This is the interesting thing, Barry. I was uh, once I finished my teaching degree, I still felt that I wanted to pursue further studies, and to not so much that I could. Well, I have a passion for the church, but I have a passion for the Bible, and I think as I was doing my practical um, experience as a teacher in some of the schools in Sydney, I realized that as much as I love teaching and I love working with young people because young people have so much potential. I, I, I really enjoy the energy that they have. 
I realized that I don't get as excited about Shakespeare as I do about the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I really want to do something, a um, little extra study so that I can do things with the Bible. In Have the you found those, those skills in English and history useful in your, oh, in yes. your preaching? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't think any of my teaching studies was, were wasted at all. Uh, it's, um, it's interesting that you should say that. Mm. You went back to complete theological training. Mm -hmm. Where did you do this? I'm presently um, completing my postgraduate theology degree here at Avondale College, which is not far from this studio. And uh, I will be, God willing, completing that this year. So is that a two-year post-degree it, post post course? Yeah, two years. So it's full, two years full-time? Two years full-time. I've been doing so it So you're getting time. fairly close to the end of that process. Yes. Tell me about the experience of theological training. Oh, it's been uh, a very mentally rigorous experience. Um, yeah, Greek is uh, something that is new to me. It was difficult, but I enjoy the history that I've learnt. And Greek, oh, as difficult as it is, it really does help you in your study of the Bible. It's amazing the insights that you can draw from Scripture as you go deep into the Word. Do you have a good memory? I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> What are the challenges that theology students face? I mean, most people have the impression that a theology student is someone who's a bit otherworldly. Mm. Um, and uh, maybe the theology is just a bit airy-fairy. Mm -hmm. What do you find about theology that's really exciting, that's ex exciting intellectually? I think the danger in anything is that when we are studying it, we forget how it relates to people in real life. Mm -hmm. It's easy to bury yourself in the books and enjoy, you know, do, pulling things apart and, and studying deeply. But you've got to remember that what you're studying is really, ultimately, it's supposed to be equipping us in helping others and helping others to come to a knowledge of Jesus. So uh, there are challenges in making sure you stay balanced, but I think as we go out and as we mingle with people and as you talk to people and you have opportunities to study the Bible with people one-on-one, -on -one, those challenges can be overcome by God's So do grace. you find that really exciting? I do, yes. What's, your, what's the thing that gives you most satisfaction? There is nothing that gives me more joy than when you have put a lot of time in, in research and study into preparing a presentation on Jesus, where you have poured your heart and soul into it and you have sought to try and find every word that is the most appropriate so that when you put it all together, Jesus is presented in the most attractive way possible. And uh, when you've put in all of that effort and God blesses you as you do that, it's just something extremely thrilling to see people respond and people accept Jesus. So you're still doing some preaching while you're studying? Oh, yes. I preach. And what are your plans for the future? I wish I could tell you, but those plans are in God's hands. <laughs> um, I really am just trusting him that he will open the doors. I, if I, Looking back, I would never have dreamt that I would be doing what I'm doing right now. But as I said, when I made that promise to God, he really did open up the doors for me everywhere. I've been all around this country and even some places overseas, which has just been a tremendous blessing. So I made a promise to God, I'll go wherever you open the doors and I know that he will open the right doors. What do you see as the challenges facing evangelism today? We live in a post-Christian society. Mm -hmm. 
What are the great challenges that face evangelists? The um, story that springs to mind is the story of Caleb and Joshua when they went to spy out the promised land and the the spies came back and said, we can't because of all the all these Amorites and the Jebusites and all the other ites that were dotting the hills of Canaan. And when it comes to evangelism and we look across the landscape before us, I think we can be discouraged by ites as well, yes. materialites, postmodernites. But uh, we need not be afraid because when we have our eyes fixed on the Lord and on the God of promise and on the promise of God, he has promised us that he will give to us the, the good of the land, and I believe that there is a great reward still in evangelism. You seem to be a very organized person. Tell me about how you approach the preparation of a sermon. <laughs> That's a very good question. I have, this is something that I didn't learn. I've just gone to Avondale now, and they're trying to teach me how to do it the right way, and I've learned probably my own way, which is very hard to shake. But basically, as I have my time with Jesus in my private devotional life, there will always be something that strikes me as, wow, that's a wonderful thought. And uh, for example, just recently this year, I was reading the story of Enoch. Well, it's not that long in the Bible, but Enoch walked with God. And as I listened and thought on that, that thought, it just overwhelmed me. And I thought, I gotta write a sermon on that. And so then I would read as much as I can about the life of Enoch and go into word studies and things like this. I read, read, read extensively, put it all together. And I wish I could say it was a very easy process, but it took me, I think, three months before I finally had something that resembled a message. Um, as I tell people, sermon writing is something that's very difficult for me. I feel like it's almost like giving birth <laughs> because it's so much effort. But I also think that when we put in the effort and when we make the effort to do the best we can, God blesses. Tell me about some of your successes as a uh, an evangelist. I don't. I would, you know, just two things. When I say success, obviously it's not something that you yeah. are entirely responsible for. But clearly, the Lord uses you to reach people that maybe other people can't reach. Hmm. Well, I've had wonderful experiences overseas. Um, in an island called Pompeii, which is in Micronesia. It was a privilege to go over there with a team um, from Guam and the United States. We went over there. We were part of a youth congress there, and that was amazing. They'd never had anything like that in that part of uh, Micronesia before. And every night they were making appeals, but um, on the last day we changed the appeal a little bit, and um, we made an appeal for baptism, and people came forward, and it was just just amazing to see that. Um, also, I will never forget the way the Lord blessed my first um, attempt at, at serving the Lord in, in an evangelistic capacity. I just, everything that God does, everything that has happened that has been good has all been the Lord. And it's not been me. In fact, even when you tell me that I'm an evangelist now, I, I feel really uh, inadequate and unworthy of such a title. I don't even call myself that. I just prefer to think of myself as a speaker because that's what I promised the Lord I would do. But uh, there are many people that I get stories. Uh, there was a man that sat in one of my workshops at this conference in Pompeii and I uh, was running a workshop on how to run a youth-led evangelistic campaign. I didn't know, but this man, his name was Ronnie, but he was a Roman Catholic. 
and uh, he and his wife had been having some serious marriage problems because he had told her that she was to stop going to church. And she had told him she wasn't going to stop going to church. And so serious was she about this that she got divorce papers and she said, if you won't let me go, then I'm filing for a divorce. So he decided that he would come to this youth conference that we were at. And I didn't know that was the whole story. But Ronnie's sitting in the class. He's learning about evangelism. He's listening to messages on the sanctuary and on Jesus and the plan of salvation. And when that appeal was made, the last appeal that I mentioned a moment ago, Ronnie came forward. His wife was so happy she didn't know if she should laugh or cry. It was just we all didn't know what to do, actually. It was just the most wonderful thing. Teresa, tell me about your family. Oh, I love talking about my family, Barry. I have one mum, one dad. Um, if people could see me, they would find me probably a little bit confusing because my dad, he is Samoan and his father was part Chinese, so he's dark and um, he's got a nice Polynesian complexion. And then my mum is from Queensland. She's fair, got auburn hair. And uh, if you look at the two of them, you look at me and you will see that I'm all mixed up. <laughs> my sister, I have one sister, her name is Marlita. She's younger than me and she is a nurse at Sydney Adventist Hospital. But growing up, we would look at our parents and we would think that we were adopted because we didn't look like either of them. And you can't help this kind of confusion when you ask your dad, Dad, where did we come from? And he looks at you and he says, I found you on Special and Grace Brothers. <laughs> that was the explanation. <laughs> Tell me about your father. Uh, my father. He is an accountant and uh, he's a lovely man. He's a funny man. He's got a good sense of humor. When I think about my dad, uh, all sorts of funny memories come to mind. I remember when we had a snake in our house because your dad is obviously your protector. In fact, before the snake, there was this time when I was growing up where I was afraid of the dark and I would struggle to sleep at night. And uh, I must have seen something on the news or something that frightened me. And my mum came into my room and she put her arm around me and said, don't worry, dear, it's okay. And my dad just was fed up. He's more straight to the point, you know. Mum's gentle, dad's just you know, straight down the line. He comes in and he says, hey, what's your problem? He says, look at me. And I looked at him. He says, if anybody steps foot in this house, I will sort them out. And I looked at my dad and he's quite a big guy. <laughs> he's not a little guy. And I figured that, yeah, if somebody did step foot into our house while I was asleep, that dad would be my protector. So I slept. For years, I slept like a baby until one night I woke up in the middle of the night I needed to go to the restroom, so I was on my way there and I tripped over something in the hall and this loud bang echoed throughout the house and I froze, thinking that my dad's going to wake up, he's going to think that I'm some intruder and he's going to come and sort me out. Well, nothing happened. <laughs> but um, dad has always been my protector. In fact, when I was bullied as a kid in primary school, my mom again, the comforter, Puts her arm around me, there, there, it's okay, dear, you know, you know, we'll talk to the teacher. My daddy just wanted their address, where they, <laughs> where they lived, what did they look like, so he could go and fix them for me. But um, he's been a wonderful dad. He loves giving advice. I think that comes from the Chinese background in him. Um, just a couple of years ago, in fact, we were watching the news, and um, there was a story on the news about some teenager who had been at a party and at this party there was a dare that came out where they dared them to lick a slug. So this teenager licked a slug and there must have been some bacteria or some terrible thing on and he, they died as a result of licking the slug. 
I'll never forget, my dad got up from the couch and he went, turned the television off, sat back down, and he proceeded to give my sister and I a lecture on why we shouldn't lick slugs. <laughs> that was very funny because we were in our 20s. But, <laughs> but he's um, definitely been a protector. He's been a wonderful provider. Um, he's uh, just a wonderful... He's taken a great interest in my sister and I. Um, he talks to us, which is, I think is really important. I know that... Um, some kids, some of my friends, you know, when I would tell them about my dad and they would say, I wish I had your dad because my dad doesn't talk to me. So I'm blessed to have a dad that talks to me. And perhaps what is most a blessing about him is that I can walk into his room some nights and I'll find him on his knees and he'll be on his knees. And I know that he's praying for us. I know because he tells me. He tells me I'm praying for you, and he tells me that I'm praying that God will make you and your sister useful. <laughs> That's what he tells me. So in what ways are you like your dad? Uh, <laughs> you'd have to ask some other people that. My sister is a lot like him and her being able to be very direct with people. You know, It's very black and white. I have uh, my mom's gentleness, but I think I got a bit of my dad's wit as well. Um, I should mention Barry. I've made him out to be this wonderful Brady Bunch dad, which he is a great blessing to me. But, you know, he left um, the Lord. He stopped walking with God shortly after he married my mom, <laughs> which is unfortunate because when she married him, she thought he was a Christian man who loved Jesus, which I suppose he did at one stage, but he got distracted and took his eyes off Jesus and went and started doing all these things he shouldn't have been doing. And for years, we prayed for my dad, for years. Uh, he, would, he was smoking, he was drinking, he was out late on nights, and he would come home drunk even. We prayed for dad for years, and um, I think it was 2000. In the year 2000, my sister and I were on a Pathfinder camp, which is like a guides program with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And while we were out there, my dad had come to pick us up and take us home, and he was... He'd been out on the lake canoeing because he loves showing people how he can lift the canoe because he paddles so fast, you know. He, everything's a game. <laughs> the canoe can go really fast. But he felt this sharp pain in his chest, and so he retired to the bank and he lay down under a tree, but the pain didn't go away. It just kept getting worse. In fact, his vision started to close in, and that's when he realized something was not right. And he did something that, not that day that he hadn't done for a long time. And he said, Lord, if you save my life, I'll give it to you. Something like that. Pray a prayer like that. And uh, when he would prayed that prayer, a light didn't shine from heaven. There was no voice or anything. But what did happen was that all of these ants and insects started to bite him. <laughs> and they annoyed him so much that he got up and he made a 15-minute hike from the campsite to the car and... Uh, we didn't know this at the time, but he was actually having a massive heart attack, which is a very dangerous thing to do when you're going through that. But we got there. We hopped in the car. He drove my sister and I um, along this very windy road here in Sydney, and um, it's the Golston Gorge. If you know it, it's extremely dangerous, yes, especially when you're having a heart attack and can't see. And um, we happened to he happened to be able to drive us to a church member's home. This church member is an ambulance officer, and they're hardly ever home. But this one day, they were home, and uh, they had called their friends, and two ambulances had come because they thought it was their, their mate that had been needing the help, but it was for my dad. And so, yes, he went to the hospital, and God spared his life, I believe. Um, from that time on, he told my mum, 
throw out the cigarettes <laughs> and he never smoked, never drank again. He changed his diet. He, uh, he loved his chicken and <laughs> he liked some meat dishes. But um, after that, for his health, he cut all of that out. And I've got to tell you, you know, when I think about my dad from my childhood and my dad now, that he's a different man. God changed him. And he's still working on him as he's still working on all of us. But I claim in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And I can see that verse lived out in the life of my dad. And he actually... He gave his heart to the Lord again that time, but he was rebaptized just not that long ago, 2007. And he's continued to fulfill his side of the bargain? Oh, you know what, Barry? If you came to visit my church in Sydney on a Sabbath morning, you'd walk in and at 10 o'clock when our Sabbath school starts, we have preliminaries before that, but you would walk in and you'll see a man on the far corner of the church leading a Sabbath school class. That man's my dad. So he's still very faithful to the Lord, and he plays his trumpet at church every week. Does he sing too? I don't think I've met a Samoan person who can't sing. He can sing. Yeah, he, he likes to sing. Now tell me about your mother. My mother. Uh, there are some people, I was saying to someone just, just recently, that there are some people who when you meet them, you feel like they could just walk into heaven. And my mom is one of those people when I look at her. When I think about all the things she put up with <laughs> with my dad when he was not walking with the Lord, it wasn't easy. But she was very patient, very gentle, and she's very prayerful. And I think during that time when my dad was not walking with God, it caused her to lean on the Lord more. And um, when I think back to my childhood, my mom, when we were out in public and if I needed some disciplining, of course, Barry, it was never really me that needed the discipline. My sister was always more the, you know, no, I had to have discipline as well. But if we were out in public, she never raised her voice at us, which is kind of remarkable when you go through a shopping center and you see parents these days. But she would grab my hand and she would squeeze it <laughs> if I needed to little warning and uh, and if I did need more than just the squeeze I was taken to a bathroom and I was told you know if, if we don't step into line then we're going home um, but she was a, a wonderful mother yes a wonderful homemaker and I remember in my childhood I would walk into our family office in our home on a Sabbath afternoon and I would walk in there and she'd be memorizing the Bible. And I'd sit down on the floor in the room and I'd be drawing or doing something on the floor and, and she'd be memorizing, for example, I remember she was always I remember once she was memorizing Revelation fourteen, six to twelve, the three angels' messages. And she'd be going over and over and over it in the room and just because of the fact I was sitting on the floor listening, I learnt scripture <laughs> by listening to my mum memorize the Bible. Every morning, without fail, for my whole life if I wake up early and I walk into my parents' room, I've found my mother on her knees every day. <laughs> the only time I don't see her there is because she's tired and she slept in, but she's always spending time with Jesus. She is, um, she, well, I forget what she was doing actually before I was born, but once I was born, she was a full-time mum, stay-at-home mum. And um, as I grew older, she started studying the Bible with other people to fill her time. And today she's a Bible worker for our local church. And it's, it's a wonderful thing when you can sit back in a church and you look around, and I have done this sometimes, 
And I think of all the people that she studied with as I look around the congregation, and there are a number of people that sit mm. in the church just because of her faithful, patient effort. And Great role model. A great role model. What are some other ways in which she's influenced you? I think she's um, been a great encouragement to me. Um, she's always given me good advice. Both parents have. Um, and I think my dad's advice was maybe not always on the spiritual side because he wasn't always there present spiritually, but he was present in every other way. When discipline was involved, he was there. Um, if my mom disciplined us, he was always backing her up, always getting us to respect my mom. But otherwise, my mom has always been a great teacher. And something that I do really appreciate is that she taught us to love Jesus and she taught us to relate to him as a person. Jesus was mm -hmm. never this concept, this ancient figure. No, he was made very real to us our whole lives. And um, she was present in our Sabbath school experience, you know, going to church, you know, in, in every division of my Sabbath school growing up life, she was there. How did you relate to your sister? How do I relate to her? Well, she is my strength. <laughs> um, we have known each other ever since she showed up. <laughs> She's a great blessing to me. We are two very different people, but we are very close as well. As I said, we shared a room for 20 years, and we got so used to it that when we finally moved house a little while ago, um, it was strange for us to be in two different rooms. So we would call each other on the phone to say goodnight. That's how close we are. <laughs> But Marlita, she has a wonderful gift that God has um, given her in singing. And I'll, I will actually say this, that when I, was, when I started preaching as a teenager, there was a lot of attention that came my way because I was always up the front and I was always preaching and making noise. Marlita was always in the background and she was always very supportive. As soon as I'd finished, she would come and get all my things. And, you know, that, that, that takes us very special person, I think, to be not jealous, but mm. to be supportive. And here's the wonderful thing, Barry, is that God has blessed her now with her own ministry. So I'm preaching, and now she has this singing gift that God has developed in the last two years, and she's actually just completed um, a, her very first CD album, which is going to be launched uh, this coming Saturday night in our local church. But it is amazing to see what God has done in her life. We're going to listen now to a song from Arlita's album called Stand By Me. Tossing me 
like a ship out on the sea Thou who rulest wind and water Stand by me In the midst of faults and failures Stand by me Stand by me Do you sing as well? I wish I could say that I was a good singer, Barry, but I sing joyfully in the shower and in choirs and in groups, <laughs> but I wouldn't call myself a soloist. <laughs> what role has the church played in your life? Well, I hope the listeners have gained a sense of just how big a role the church has played in my life. Church has been my life. I feel like I'm so much a part of it that I'm part of the furniture sometimes. I love the church, not because of the building, but because the church is made up of people. And to me, the church is my family. My blood relatives live in Samoa, which is obviously over the ocean and in other parts of Australia and so I've adopted the church as my family. And I think that's the wonderful thing about a church is that they do become family. And when you come to love Jesus and you accept him as your savior, he accepts you into his family. And not only do you have a family in your local church congregation, but as you travel around the world, you find wherever you go, you have family everywhere. And you can feel at home just about anywhere because you're part of the family of God. Have you ever had any doubts about Christianity? I have. I have had times where I have questioned things, but I think to have doubt is a healthy thing sometimes, provided that when we have those doubts, we feed our faith. 
I think that um, God doesn't want us to have belief without proof, but trust without reservation when it comes to walking with God. And so, yes, there have been times where I've wondered, you know, is it is all of this for real? And every time I have those questions into my mind, I just have to look around me and I just have to reflect on all that God has done because the, the Bible says the fool have said in his heart, there is no God. It is foolish, really, if I look back on all that God has done in my life, in the lives of others in this world. Creation itself is a miracle that testifies to the fact that there is a God. I just think on all of that and I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt again. What do you think are the most powerful evidences for Christianity? What are the things that convince you of God's existence and his care for us? Oh, there are so many things we could draw on here. Certainly the, the fact that God can change lives is a very powerful evidence to me. I gave one example before, what God did in my dad's life. Uh, there has to be a God in my books mm. as far as I'm concerned when I look at him and when I look at others. Um, but I also have this little fascination with space, and I love stars. I have a book at home on stars, and I have a telescope, which I broke, but never mind. But I love space, and I look up, and, and when you realize just how small we are in this great universe, and to think that, that God loves you in this little world, it's just a, a wonderful testimony to the fact that there is a God. What does your faith mean to you now? In short, everything. Can you imagine life without faith? Uh, no, but if I did, it would be very boring. <laughs> uh, honestly, walking with God is just one of the greatest adventures one could ever dream of having. I, I think it's the greatest experience one could crave. And I don't regret a day that I have lived for Jesus. If anything, I regret I didn't spend more time with him. I regret that I haven't done more for him, but I certainly don't regret that I've anything that I've done for him. What's your great hope for the future? Oh, you're asking an Adventist. <laughs> I look forward to the day when Jesus comes back with all my heart. And as I watch uh, the news, I'm also a news fanatic. I love breaking news. I love to be the first one to break something to someone else. If I'm watching the news channel and those two words, breaking news, flash on the screen, I'll be glued to that screen until those two words disappear. <laughs> so to me, the great hope of all the ages, the great breaking news for the planet is that Jesus is coming soon. And I know, I know he's been coming soon for a very long time. Those three, three times in the final chapter of the Bible, Jesus says, behold, I come quickly, behold, I come quickly. But um, I really do believe as I look around that we must be so close to the end of time. And I think about that dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2, that, that, that image. If you think about that as a timeline of history, we must be on the very toenails of time because Jesus is coming soon. And that's my great hope for the future. What do you see in the world today that convinces you that we are close to the end of time? Well, there's great things happening in our society on a social level. There's been some great social changes, and I'm not sure if I should go into those here on this program, but definitely there's been some serious social shifts that have taken place. But also I think what's most interesting to me right now is the fact that there is some very interesting shifts happening in the religious world as well. There's a great ecumenical movement that seems to be gaining momentum um, 
And so I'm, I'm really interested in that, especially in the light of Bible prophecy, which tells us that all the world will wonder after the beast, you know, just before Jesus comes back. So I'm really interested in that. My dad is into finance, and so he's always telling us the financial situation of things, and he th- he's always telling us how bad it is and it's getting worse. And so there's just so much in the religious, the social, the political, the environmental. This, every sphere of life is evidence that... Jesus is coming soon. It seems like the Christian foundations of our Western civilization are crumbling. Absolutely. And um, that I don't know whether people really realize the significance of that because when you change the underpinning thinking mm. in your society, mm. everything's up for grabs again. Everything, mm. Everything's changing. And I think it's a far different world than mm. it was even just a few decades ago. And that's a good point you make there because it's a little bit like the frog in a pot of water and you just turn the heat up and if you're the frog, well, you won't notice the heat until you're boiled, you know, because it's all happening so gradually. And so I think what you just say there is a good reminder to us that we just need to be so grounded in the Word of God so that we can, as we delve into his word, the Holy Spirit can work on our hearts and open our eyes to what is going on. You talked about the ecumenical movement. Mm. Uh, It seems to me that that movement can only progress as we de-emphasize the Bible because Mm. people have different views about what the Bible means and Mm. people are trying to de-emphasize their doctrine so that they can come together in unity. Mm. So this raises the issue of um, the Bible. How much authority does the Bible have? If you're a Christian then the Bible has all the authority. It is God's word. And um, we used to be known as the people of the book, Sola Scriptura. That was the watch cry, what the catch cry, whatever you say it, of the Reformation, you know, Sola Scriptura. And, uh, yeah, it should have all the authority. But I think what we're seeing in the religious world is that we are pushing for unity at the expense of truth. And so Mm. we're, we're not giving the Bible its rightful place in our lives putting other things above it, other people's opinions. I mean... Why are there so many opinions about the Bible? Oh, I, I wish I knew. People just should just read the Bible, shouldn't they? They just keep making things up. And I, I guess this is testimony to the fact that we are living our lives on a battlefield. There is a great controversy raging, according to the Bible, between good and evil. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then we can expect that Satan and the devil will be doing all he can to get people confused about what is truth. But if we will just stick with the text, as God said it, we can know. Well, God said that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So mm. if we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and we read the Bible with eyes um, that are looking for the, looking for the truth and, mm. the, and the significance of it. Surely God is going to give us the truth. Mm. He's not going to give us error. Mm-hmm. And so we should all theoretically be able to come to the truth. Mm. So maybe it's our minds, it's our desires, these sorts of things filter out the things that we're reading mm. so we see things in a different way. Well, I'm going to ask you what you have learned in your life. Now, your life is, again, you're a young, a young person, mm. so it's a work in progress. Mm. What have you learned in your life now that you think is of universal importance, something that everybody needs to know? Okay, well, that's a very big question, Barry. So I'm just going to filter through several things that I've learned and just focus on this one, and that is this, that I believe that 
we often think that God can't use us because of all the limitations that we have personally. Maybe it's our education wasn't that good, our family background wasn't that good, uh, what, we've done bad things, or we we just lack in so many different areas. But if there's one thing that I've learned in my life, it is this, and that is God can use anybody. And he used me. And that's something which I will never forget and hold on to. And I, I hope to use my story to encourage other people to trust God and let him do something in their lives because he's longing to work in their lives as well. I think this issue of confidence is really important. Um, a lot of people lack confidence. Mm. Maybe, their edu- as you say, maybe their education wasn't as good as it might have been or they didn't achieve or... They didn't feel that they had any real talents and so forth. Mm. And yet um, I believe that everyone has a unique talent and ability that can be used for God. And I think it's up to us as Christians to encourage people to reach their potential. Mm. I don't believe we were put here on this earth just to live diminished lives. God wants us to really enjoy life. He said, I've come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. I Mm. think that's a fantastic thing to be able to aim at. Now, do you have a favorite passage of Scripture? I have many favorite passages. My favorite passages change every day. And like my favorite hymn, my favorite color has remained the same for a very long time, but my favorite passages just change all the time. So the passage for today will be Psalms 34, verse 8, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man, brackets I'm going to put in, or woman who trusts in him. I think if we would, as you say, confidence is something that holds us back. But I believe that if we will just step out in faith and give God our lives and just allow him to work in us, if we say yes to Jesus, it will change your life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So God's not asking us to come to blind faith. He's actually asking us to experience him and to to trust him. Mm. Thank you, Teresa. That's been great talking with you today. My normal practice is to ask my guest to pray for our listeners. Mm. I'm just wondering whether you'd like to close with a prayer for our listeners. I'd love to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the blessing that it is to know you. And I just want to pray for our listeners, for those who have been listening to this time as they've listened to how God has worked in my life. I pray that it might be an encouragement to them. Perhaps some may be feeling that they are useless to God. Maybe they feel that their lives are in ruins. But Lord, you are not helpless among the ruins of our lives and you can do anything. With God, little is much. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in claiming the promise of Psalm 34 and verse 8, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Lord, please help us to trust you and to step out into the unlimitable nature of who you really are. Because as we do this, you will work wonders in our lives as we trust you. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Teresa. It's been lovely talking with you today. Wish you well in the future and I shall follow your career with interest. (laughs) Thank you, Barry. I've been talking with Teresa Fong about her life and ministry. Remember to tune in again next time as I talk with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Bye for now. God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.